Hello and welcome to Loose Narrative, a celebration of camp and cinema. Each episode we watch and dissect a cult classic in order to determine what makes a movie truly and successfully campy. This week we're discussing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 1970. I'm your host Christoph Pakula and with me is my co-host Chris Lane. I prefer Superwoman. (laughs) How are you doing this week Chris? Oh, you know, I'm surviving. How are you? I'm doing great, especially after the joy that is um, watching this movie. Oh, such a joy. (laughs) So let's, since this is our very first episode, let's give the people a little bit of a background of why we decided to do this podcast. Um, You and I both really love camp culture. Yes, we do. Um, This is something we determined in the past year or so, and we don't feel like we have that many outlets to celebrate camp culture, hence the birth of this podcast. That's right. We also watched individually the Met Gala, the celebration of camp, and realized that people don't really know what camp is. Yeah, so we, we realized that this is kind of the perfect time to have an ongoing discussion of how to define camp because clearly the celebrities and fashionistas out there could not do it. So I thought there's no better way to start than to talk about one of my favorite films of all time, which is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And with every episode, we're going to start with um, reading the synopsis of the movie, (laughs) Ice Cold, Cold as Gazpacho, from the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com. So, here it goes. (laughs) Three girls come to Hollywood to make it big, but find only sex, drugs, and sleaze. What do you think about that synopsis, Sounds like my kind of movie. (laughs) You had me at sleaze. So, um, this is the portion of the show where I'm going to turn to Chris as he is our camp culture historian. And I'm going to... He dove into the nooks and crannies of this movie's (laughs) history for us. And um, I'd like you to present to us what you found. Tell us about the background of this movie. Clearly, it is a unofficial sequel to Valley of the Dolls, so... Yes, it is a complete unofficial sequel, if you even want to call it a sequel. I like to think of this as the Troll 2 of the 1960s. That's absolutely perfect. Right? Because it doesn't really connect to the Valley of the Dolls, but it's kind of loosely based on the Valley of the Dolls. You still have the same types of characters. They get lost in sex and drugs and kind of becoming famous, right? So, you know, when 20th Century Fox, they released the original Valley of the Dolls, which was based on the novel by Jacqueline Suzanne, they contracted her to write a script for the sequel, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. 20th Century Fox hated her scripts. I think she wrote three drafts. They rejected her. And then they hired Russ Meyer to come up with a sequel, and he hired Roger Ebert. And why did he hire Roger Ebert? Because Roger Ebert wrote amazing reviews of a lot of Russ Meyer's films. He absolutely loved Faster Pussycat Kill Kill 
And with that, you had the birth of this wonderful camp classic that cost $900,000 to make and grossed $40 million at the box office. Which is insane. I did not know before tonight that this movie was actually financially successful. I'm, I, I'm very it's surprised. It's crazy. Like, beyond financially successful. Yeah. Like, they, they really went to the bank with yeah, that beyond money. Beyond the valley of financial success. And it's also, I think it's, like, kind of, like, clearly, like, this movie is a stunt queen. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, Like, people loved Valley of the Dolls. It was, like, a huge pop culture moment in the late 1960s the book the movie and then they came up with the sequel and it was like well if you liked valley of the dolls you'll love beyond (laughs) the valley of the dolls so from my understanding russ and roger wrote this movie in about a week or so maybe a couple weeks i yeah i read somewhere it was like six weeks but okay it's almost like alanis morissette writing jagged little pill this is the jagged little pill (laughs) cinema Six weeks is crazy. Six weeks is crazy. Um, And this is, I think this is a perfect movie to kind of start this camp conversation because it definitely seems like they set out to make a campy movie. And I think there's a lot of discussion around if camp can be intentional, if it's unintentional. And I think that this movie perfectly marries the two i think they wrote i think roger wrote kind of a ridiculous um script um but russ had the actresses play it straight and it it kind of became this beautiful uh, they they created intentionally created an unintentional comedy well that's right it's it's completely the script itself is so self-referential there's so many moments where if you are an actor or an actress, how could this be an actual script? But they played it to the T. They, they really did not veer off from any of the dialogue at all. There was no improvisation. <laughs> and the dialogue was brilliant. Um, so I think this is the perfect time to get into the meat of our podcast. Ooh, where's the beef? <laughs> and we are going to break down the plot step-by-step to answer the three questions of our podcast, which are, is this movie campy? What makes this movie campy? And how loose was the narrative? Mmm, my favorite part. (laughs) So, let's break it down. We open the movie with one of the final (laughs) scenes of the movie without any context, So we are just thrown into chaos. We just see characters running around. Um, Basically, you see a Nazi running around (laughs) and and some sort of magical creature with a cape and a sword that's covered in blood. I mean, honestly, the way the way this film opens up, it's almost as if it's some sort of film noir. Like we're at Mildred Pierce's coastal home and it's a day for night shot and all of a sudden there's these absurd characters running around chasing each other a nazi and some sort of magical (laughs) mystical wizard where's the acid (laughs) so the magical mr mystical wizard in question um puts the barrel of a gun into a topless woman's mouth because guns of course are metal penises yes and 
he pulls the trigger. And just as she screams, we smash cut to our leads, um, the three women uh, currently in a band called The Kelly Affair, performing their hit song, Find It, at a senior prom. And um, I love this song so much. This, the music in this movie is actually really good. If you haven't heard the soundtrack, I mean, if you haven't watched the movie, run out and watch the movie immediately. But if you haven't heard the soundtrack also, it's so good. go find the soundtrack. It is legitimately good. I mean, everything about this movie is legitimately good, but the music really slaps, as the kids say. Can I just say, though, that the, the band named The Kelly Affair, it honestly sounds like it's some sort of paperback, pulpy, <laughs> like, <laughs> like mystery novel that, I, that I'd find at my supermarket checkout. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Kelly Affair. <laughs> I absolutely love it. So, after they perform at this senior prom, they go outside to a van, smoke a joint, um, let's talk about our, let's talk about our main characters. So we have, um, Kelly McNamara, who is the lead of the movie. Um, she's played by Dolly Reed, who mm-hmm. was a Playboy Playmate in the 1960s. And she was also a regular on Match Game. And if you're a lover of camp and have not watched Match Game, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Um, then we have... Cynthia Myers, who plays Casey Anderson, Mm -hmm. um, the bass player, the senator's daughter. And then we have Petronella Danforth, Pet, played by Marsha McBroom, who is the drummer. And they are managed by Harris. And um, we're in the van with the gang. Uh, Kelly and Harris start making out. And... um, Pet and Casey get fed up, leave the van. Well, they leave the van to go get acid from the principal. True. (laughs) (laughs) Score a couple caps of acid from the principal. And um, Kelly asks Harris if they, if you want to make love. And he asks here. And she goes, no, No, in in LA. So then we immediately cut to a montage of different scenes from LA, different scenes from parties in the movie. But I really appreciate these like vintagey scenes of Los Angeles, particularly scenes of LAX, a completely empty century city with like basically the Intercontinental, and that's it. Um, there's Watt, the, the Watts Towers are featured, um, but the entrance into Beverly Hills, and then. Well, before that though, there's like that mont that that whole montage. Well, this is the montage. Yeah, this, this is, is the montage. montage. This is the montage. This is the montage. But then, but then there's like that optical effect of them sort of traveling along the tent. <laughs> yes, it is such a long, long montage. <laughs> Just. Slowly going through Arizona. I think you're a little confused, Chris, because there was two different montages. There was the LA montage oh. where we learn that they are visiting, they're going to Kelly's long lost aunt, Aunt Susan. They're visiting her. And then we cut into the, oh, you know, you're there's right. an LA montage and then there's a road trip montage um, along the, with the song, Come With The Gentle People. And Call they, me montage confused. <laughs> well, that I think that's one of the confusing things <laughs> about this movie is that we're only 10 minutes into the movie at this point, and we've already had two musical numbers, one of which is a montage and then a separate montage. The amount of time the lead characters have actually had conversation was about 30 seconds. True. 
Um, so I think um, it's fair to say that a lot of montages, a lot of musical numbers in a short amount of time can make a very campy film. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of choices made in this movie with the editing um, that really, <laughs> really make it an assault on the senses and really kind of drive that, that camp feeling. Um, so once we finally get to LA, we, um, we find ourselves in the most ridiculous, like 1960s fashion house photo shoot. Um, there's, there's a comedic moment. <laughs> there's many comedic moments with a, with a gay character. Women are grabbing his crotch. He feels uncomfortable. People in swings. People, there's a woman in a swing. Um, and then Kelly just walks right in and... <laughs> And everything's normal. Everything's normal. <laughs> you know, you know how people do, just like walking into to fashion houses. What's a typical LA lifestyle, right? That's what it's that's what, what we do, do in LA. Um, and she finally meets her rich aunt Susan, and she is with Porter Hall, her uh, significant other in this in this situation. Um, At any point, does she ever say? My name is not Susan. <laughs> Just a little Whitney Houston reference. <laughs> so basically, Kelly just comes out of nowhere, introduces herself as her long lost niece, and they they cut to, hey, come to a dinner at my house later today. And we have a scene where Susan, Kelly, and Porter are having dinner. And I really love this scene because... Um, Kelly is firing on all cylinders. Dolly Reed is firing on all cylinders. Dolly Reed is um, from England, but she is playing an American girl in this movie. And her accent is the most inconsistent accent I've ever heard in my life. It's, it honestly, she tries so hard to hide her English accent that at many points it turns kind of Southern. Yes, it, it fluctuates, and you know, the people say that like the Cockney accent is like when 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 the English moved over here and they moved to the South, the Cockney accent turned into the Southern accent. So I really think that like as she's trying to get rid of her English accent, it turns into some sort of Southern accent, and then and then she transitions into some sort of American accent. Now, mind you, she's from supposedly Worcester. <laughs> Which is outside of Boston. She does every accent in this movie except for a Bostonian accent. <laughs> I also just love her facial expressions. She is so doe-eyed. She's just very, very expressive in this movie and kind of chews the scenery. And that's very welcome because two of the other um, leads, uh, both Casey and Harris, are very dour throughout this movie. They're very no. sad. So we, we really need... They look like they don't want to be there. Yeah, no. <laughs> so so I love I love Dolly for really um, serving it all the way. So at this dinner, we find out um, that Kelly is... Um, can get a amount of the family's inheritance. And... They talk about her potentially getting a third of the family inheritance. Of a million dollars. Of a million dollars. I don't know how much a million dollars was in 1970. That was a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. For, for them to make a movie for under a million dollars. I mean, taking, And then for her to make 40 million. Taking into account inflation. Yeah, I'm guessing it's... It's a lot. It's a lot of fucking money. So, so, um, then Susan invites Kelly and her friends 
to a party at Ronnie Z-Man Barzell's house. And Z-Man is a... Um, he's kind of a Phil Spector character. I think he was That's absolutely based, he was based on Phil Spector. That's right. Which, if you you know know this movie and know that he turns out to be a cold blooded killer, I don't Oof. know if that's irony or if that they already knew things about Phil Spector in 1970. It's bone chilling. Yes, truly. So, um, Z-Man's party is a really really ridiculous scene um, where we just get. Bits and pieces of random conversations. There's no Ugh. thorough line. You don't hear the beginning of the conversation or the end of the conversation. You just hear the middle of many different conversations of char- that characters at this party are having. As well as all the fashions. <laughs> yes, the fashions Absolutely are all the fashions are on point. Uh, and the colors and the patterns. Like, I, I want to go to this party. <laughs> I wish that I lived in 1969. Right. I mean, there's an elderly woman in a shake-and-go orange wig. (laughs) She looks like she doesn't have any teeth either. (laughs) Poor woman. (laughs) There is some kind of swami with, you know, little bells on his fingers. And a very long tongue. And a very long tongue. Um, And... Then, um, there's also a lot of nipples. We can't forget this is a Russ Myers movie. So there's a lot of cleavage, uh, just flat out naked people walking through the middle of the scene. Again, a party that you want to go to. Yeah. And what we haven't mentioned yet is this movie was actually rated X at the time. Which was a big deal. I think by today's standards, this would be like typical... Hard R. Yeah. This would be like (laughs) typical Cinemax stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it would be. But, like, for for a film, like, 1969 to be rated X, I mean, the one of the first ones was Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which I absolutely love. And that is so avant-garde and weird. And this film, I think, back then, is totally deserving of an X compared to Sweet Sweetback. Yeah. It's, it is, it is... By standards of the night of 1969, it is so far out there, just in the themes and the morals that it really tries to break down. And I mean, I would not send my children to go see this movie. Absolutely not. <laughs> Scandal. Um, so Kelly meets Z-Man um, and his escort slash bodyguard Vanessa. This woman's in just this one scene in the movie. I don't know what happens to her later. Yeah. Um, and he go he takes her around the room and kind of introduces to us all of our secondary characters. Um, there is Ashley St. Ives, who is portrayed by the incomparable Edie Williams. My spirit animal. <laughs> um, her character is a porn star. That's Really, all you have to know about her. What are you calling me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, He also introduces her to Roxanne, who is our lesbian fashion designer. Um, Then we... Is she a lesbian? It's very overt, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she's played by Erica Gavin, who, um, if you couldn't tell by her giant natural breasts is another kind of staple of um, Russ Meyer's films. She stars in the movie Vixen, where she does an erotic dance with a dead fish. Mm. So if that sounds like something that you're into, I would recommend checking it out. Sounds lesbianic. Very lesbianic. Very fishy. (laughs) 
Um, then we have Lance Rock, who is our beautiful actor. He's very... Think of a male Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, but with no chin. But with no chin. <laughs> like a chinless <laughs> Farrah Fawcett. Chinless Farrah Fawcett. Feathered blonde hair, striking blue eyes. Yes. Tan, tan for days. Tan for days. Um, and then we meet Emerson, the bartender. Mm-hmm. And... Um, or he's a server, and then the bartender is Otto, the big scary German Otto, guy. yeah, that's right. Um, whose story throughout this movie, I did not understand at all. I don't understand his trajectory. I don't understand the symbolism behind him. Um, his line? <laughs> his lines of dialogue? You don't understand what he says. Um, and then we get, a, we get a great line from Kelly, which is, In a scene like this, you get a contact high. <laughs> of course, she says that after Z-Men offers her some drugs. Um, and then the, immediately the next line in the film is, this is my happening, and it freaks me out. <laughs> so just to give you an idea of the kind of dialogue we're, um, we're dealing with in this movie. Um, so Z-Man takes Kelly to his bedroom where there's uh, a gay couple. Uh, oh, yeah. About to have a blowjob, un- un- unclear. Well, they were fully clothed. Yes, they were fully clothed, and, but and one, one was on And his one, legs. one had his arm on his leg, <laughs> and his head kind of slightly leaning in his crotch. So it's it's unclear. Were they just conversing, or <laughs> were they about to have a blowjob? <laughs> unclear. Um, the, for a movie from 1970, that's the most they could show to to um, suggest gay um, fellatio. That's true. Um, and then there's another couple having sex in the tub. Um, it was a bubble bath. It was a bubble bath. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very sexy bubble bath. And then um, there's some weird lines about the ferns in the in the um, bathroom. And Z-Man con- compares the ferns as a to a, a reminder that LA is a jungle. I mean. It's a jungle out there. It's a there. jungle. Um, we are both in LA right now, Chris and I. Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it is a jungle out here. I'd say a concrete jungle. <laughs> so, and then, then in the scene, um, Casey, Pet, and Harris come to the party separately. I'm, I don't know why they didn't come with Kelly and Susan. I don't know where they're staying. None of this is established. Um, and then... We get another scene with Edie Williams as Ashley St. Ives being perfect. Um, I think we should take a moment to really appreciate what she is serving in this movie. She's <laughs> always wearing some sort of gold bikini number. That's right. Some some are like, it's like kind of satiny. Other, it's just like a macrame bikini. <laughs> yeah. Um, she really, really, she's almost like a Mae West of the 1960s. Um, one thing that I wrote down as we were watching, and I was just studying Ashley St. Ives so closely, was that she really serves tight teeth and loose lips. Ooh, I love that description. Right? I mean, her teeth don't move, but her lips (laughs) just keep moving. I don't know if if you have any guesses as to what she's on in this movie. I'd like to hear your guess. I I I think Clonopin's involved. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is Valley of the Dolls. Beyond the Valley beyond. of the Dolls. Beyond. So she's she's beyond. Um, Clonopin and acid. Yeah. 
<laughs> she's just, I yeah, she's she just seems like she's mel- about to melt the entire movie. She like she doesn't move, she slithers. <laughs> Maybe she took a hit of poppers each time she got on set. Right before right before they said action, she was like, hold on. Hold. <laughs> and um if you know Russ Meyer's history, she was his wife at a at a point in time. This is true. Which which if you know his taste in women from Oof. his films, absolutely makes sense. Mm. And uh, throughout her movie, she's kind throughout the movie, she's kind of trying to hit on Harris. Um, so we'll get more into that later. Um, we have a conversation between Porter and Casey. And she's like, oh, Anderson, your father must be the Senator Anderson. Because Anderson, not a common name at all. No. Um, so this is where we learn that she's the Senator's daughter. Um, and he kind of upsets her. She storms off. She catches Roxanne's eye, the lesbian fashion designer. Um, and then all of a sudden we cut to her in the pool in the back because apparently she needed to bring a swimsuit to come to this party. That was so weird. Yeah. Right? Or was that her bra and panties? I thought it was a swimsuit. Perhaps it was her bra and panties. But then later in the movie, we're at other parties, and there's characters just hanging out in the beach in the back. So maybe it was just yeah. common practice in this time era when you came to a party in Hollywood, you would wear your bathing suit. You don't wear your bathing suit to parties in Hollywood? Absolutely not. I'm naked under here. Ooh! <laughs> Um, so then Roxanne randomly offers to design Casey a dress. We don't see this, this until for another hour and a half. I'd movie. like to design something for you. <laughs> um, so then we cut back to, we cut back to Ashley and Harris in the room. Um, and she delivers a great line. Come into my den, said the spider, etc. Um, so she's... She's hitting on him. She sticks her tongue in his ear. He goes, so you're an ear freak? And she goes, name some more. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then... I think I'm going to use that line on somebody sometime. (laughs) Oh, so you're an ear freak? (laughs) And then he offers her to lick his toes? I mean, I like somebody to lick my toes, right? I, I, I do think that there's a thorough line in this movie with him constantly being in gladiator sandals. Oh my god, that's so right. He's always wearing gladiator sandals. Yes. And it's like they make the they make the connection between gladiator sandals and foot fetishes and later being gay and it's it's Ooh. some some weird thing. The theming that's going on here that I cannot figure out. It's getting very Greco-Roman in it's here. It's very, very Greco-Roman. <laughs> Bust out the olive oil. Ooh. Um, oh, and then she says, she says the amazing line, you're a groovy boy. I'd like to strap you on sometime. <laughs> and if you're ever looking for a pickup line, that is it. That's, that's really all you need in life. <laughs> So then, then Pet runs into Emerson, the bartender, or server, and this is their little meet cute. Um, we learn that Emerson's a law student. 
Um, so we're basically getting, everybody in this movie is coupling up, meeting somebody at this party who they kind of go off with later. Um, and then Harris, Kelly, and Z-Man are together at the party, and they talk about how Kelly is the lead singer of The Kelly Affair. Um, Z-Man... You can buy it at your local CVS. <laughs> <laughs> the Kelly Affair, the, the Kelly novel. Affair. <laughs> now in paperback. Um... <laughs> So then he introduces them to the party. They sing um, Sweet Talking Candyman, mm. another fantastic song. I'm sorry, you mean C-C-C-C-Candyman. C-C-C-Candyman. Um, and at the end of the performance, he decides that they are like the historic Carrie Nation, so he renames them uh. from the Kelly Affair to the Carrie Nations. Um... And then we immediately cut to another musical number, because this is a musical. Um, and we see, you know, it's another montage-esque musical number. We see recording equipment, and then we see the figures of Z-Man and Harris on both sides of the screen, while the girls are performing in the middle. And they're kind of hitting us over the head with the symbolism of... You know, Harris is their past, Z-Man is their future, mm. and things are about to fracture. Mm. Wow. Almost like um, uh, the goddess Janice, looking forward and backwards. Ooh. I like that. <laughs> um, so then we cut to them. The end of the song, they cuts to them performing in a club. Um, all of our main characters are there. Um, something I noted was that Z-Man refers to Ashley as the high priestess of carnality. Oh my god, I wrote that down too. <laughs> <laughs> to put on your business cards, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> the high priestess of carnality is in the house. <laughs> um, and then we get a dressing room scene, and there is nothing I love more in a movie than a dressing room scene. Ah. Uh. This is really where this is really where the movie, the fun in a movie happens in a dressing room. I mean, and, it's all behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and something I wrote down was that everyone's hair in this movie is huge. I mean, it's teased and teased. It's almost like they're all wearing bumpets. Yes, absolutely. Right? Bumpets. Remember that craze? Yes. Loved a good bumpet. Um, and then so they're hanging out in the in the dressing room. Of course, this is an opportunity for Russ Myers to throw in some tits. Um, they, they're gonna go to another party at Z-Man's. Casey is kind of sad. She decides to go home. Um, and then we learn that Peg was hooking up with Emerson at the law library. Ooh. Um, so we go to, we go to... <laughs> We go to Z-Man's party. Harris decides not to go. So then Kelly... Because he's sad. Because he's sad. Because he's always he's sad. He's constantly sad. He's so emotional. Well, he, he can see where the story's going. He can see that the yeah. girls are kind of breaking away from him. Um, well, they're, they're on their way to stardom. Exactly. Um, so she runs... Kelly runs into Lance Rock at the party. Or she runs into Lance Rock at after the show, and they decide to go together, and he That's drops right. the older woman who he's hanging out with. Um, so then Harris is walking home, and Ashley St. Ives pulls up in her Rolls Royce. Um, a predator in a Rolls <laughs> Royce. She really is a straight-up predator. I mean, that was like... That was like a an old man with candy looking at like a little girl saying, yes. "Come on in, I've got some candy for you, little girl." The spider. 
Um, so she pulls up in her Rolls Royce, which she can afford because she is a porn star. That's right. And um, he gets in. <laughs> And they get to his place, and she asks for a goodnight kiss, and grabs his junk. Do I deserve a goodnight kiss? <laughs> then they uh, pull into a driveway, and um, they, there's this epic sex scene um, where she says, There's nothing like a Rolls, not even a Bentley. Bentley! Bentley. Uh. And her moans are... Um, cut with her saying rolls and Bentley and then cutting to rolls and Bentleys. I mean, what a fantastic montage in the name of capitalism. <laughs> right? Sex, sex really sells. It, it really is. Sex sells and it gets you a Rolls Royce. <laughs> Speaking of sex, we cut to Kelly and Lance having sex. So now Harris was, is with Ashley. Kelly is with Lance. Lance, for some reason, is asking Kelly in bed about Aunt Susan, who think he thinks is hot. There's also a recurring theme in this about how he likes older women, and there's never any payoff to it. It's just <laughs> something that's kind of hinted at. Um, and he convinces Kelly that she should be getting more of that inheritance money. She should be getting half a million dollars. That's right. So Kelly's fired up now. She, the next day, we're in Susan's office. Porter is saying how much he hates Kelly, how much he doesn't think she deserves the inheritance. Kelly comes in and um, she is demanding half a million dollars. And this is another one of those great scenes where Dolly Reed really chews the scenery and is very melodramatic about how much she she deserves half a million dollars. With a fluid accent. With a, with a very fluid <laughs> accent. Um so then we cut to Emerson and Pet at a picnic. Mm -hmm. They are, um, they talk about it a lot, but they're very horny. So they start frolicking through a field. I love, Ooh. I love a good frolic. I mean, that, that definitely had some sort of pantyhose filter on the camera. Oh, yes. Right? It just, everyone just looks soft <laughs> and it just looked so inviting. Yes. Didn't you want to join in on that picnic? Yes. And then they, they, they end up at a barn and make love in the barn a roll in the hay <laughs> they have a roll in the hay um and then so then you know they're making love they're happy we cut to kelly's bedroom and kelly's bedroom is the most ridiculous 1960s acid fantasy it makes peewee's <laughs> playhouse look subtle um and Porter calls Kelly. She's in bed with Lance. And uh, Porter says um, that he wants to meet with her to discuss the inheritance. Um, and Lance is like, you should seduce him to convince him to give you the inheritance. So, I mean, that really was a game of telephone. That was a truly. Right? All the back and forth. Like, I'm going to cover up the phone. He can't hear what he's saying. So, like, I don't know, just, like, a great little piece of pillow talk plus, like, a game of telephone. Yes, I love it. Love it. A lot of this, a lot of this movie is conversations over the phone and conversations in bed. I mean, that's where all conversations should be happening. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we in front of this microphone right now? Um, so, Lance talks Kelly into fucking Porter. So, Kelly and mm. Porter meet at a bar. And she does the most ridiculous dance to try to seduce him. It is some combination of like 1960s go-go dancer, but also like Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld. 
<laughs> I mean, the, 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 the gesticulations are just, it's almost like she was, she had some sort of scorpion stuck in her panties. <laughs> um, and that's not working. So then he tries to keep talking to, trying to talk about the terms of the inheritance. She gets mad, chews the scenery again, and then suddenly apologizes and invites him back to her place. Um, so we're back at her place, her... But her, at what point does he offer $50,000? Doesn't he, when he's, when I they're at the he bar... he offered her $50,000. He, like, gave her some sort of contract, and he was like, you can have $50,000 now, or nothing. I must have missed this, because I was too busy thinking about her dancing. Well, and that's what set her off, because she was like, because, I mean, theoretically, you know, she would have to wait until Susan dies to get... Half of the inheritance, theoretically, right? Got it. Okay. And so, and so he says, "Well, you can just have fifty thousand dollars now, and we'll call it a day." And that's what sets her off. So I wrote down. Got I was it. like, I was like, "That's the real million dollar question: Is it a third? Is it a half? Or is it fifty thousand dollars?" <laughs> very, very unclear. Um, very inconsistent. Um, so they're back at her place. And um, there, she invites him to smoke some weed, some grass. Mm. I think grass is this movie's favorite word. Is every they're constantly talking about smoking grass. I want to start calling it that. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yes, it's it's cute. It's classy. Yeah. Now, what I want to know is, was this grass the Acapulco Gold variety? (laughs) (laughs) They did. They did um, reference that earlier. Pet did score that from the law library. That's right, Acapulco Gold. (laughs) And something fun is that Kelly has a lighter in the shape of a giant dice. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I don't even know. I just was like, oh, that's normal. <laughs> I mean, it's it's normal in your world. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking around in Chris's apartment, I do feel a little bit like I am in Kelly McNamara's bedroom. <laughs> um, so she, she decides... Life goals. Life goals. She decides to slip into something a little more comfortable. And she, she seductively <laughs> moves away from Porter. And then she turns around and goes... Hang cool, teddy bear. <laughs> um, she puts on a sheer nightgown, immediately takes it off. I mean, that was five seconds. <laughs> five seconds. And that was a sheer nightgown. She, I mean, and she undressed fully. She, within his view, she fully undressed, yeah. put on a nightgown, came back into the room, threw off the nightgown, got into bed. Um, and then asked him to get into the bed. And he's, you know, he's... A bumbling older man. He's like folding his clothes, and it's a very unsexy sex scene. I mean, he had like his like what do you what do you call those like sock garters? What are those? Oh yeah, yeah. sock right? he garters. Still, he still had them on. He was wearing like that like tank top was really like it was it wasn't white. It was gray. It was worn. It was disgusting. It was that man's actual tank top. I'm convinced. So gross. Um, <laughs> so we cut back to Z-Man's. It's another party. There's a lot of party at Z-Man's scenes. I'm sorry if this is, it's all blurring together at this point. But we find out that the song in the long run was certified gold. So the girls are starting to make it. They are starting right. to become a success. Um, Come and, with the gentle people. Uh, Porter and Susan are at the party and we cut into their conversation a little bit and we find out that Kelly fucking Porter really did not change his mind at all. No. 
So that whole that whole storyline was kind of kind of pointless. But you know what? She tried, and we learned that fame and money will make you do unscrupulous things. Um, so then a man named Baxter Wolf comes into the party, and he pulls Susan aside, and we find out that this is her former fiance. And he says he's still in love with her, even though he's currently engaged. And a square. And a square. A total square. Total, he looks like some sort of, like, football meathead yeah. square. Or, like, mixed with, like, Sam the Eagle from The Muppets. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's very yes. bad. He, like, like, I love a good reference to The Muppets. <laughs> he, his personality is square, yes. but also his body, is fit, head and body are physically square. <laughs> Um, so then, uh, what's his name? Baxter and Susan start making out. So, fuck Porter, um, because Susan's former lover is back in the picture, and she's into him. Mm-mm. Um, and then we meet Randy, who we find out is a boxer, and he is shirtless at this party and wearing a towel around his neck. I mean... Sounds normal. So, very normal. <laughs> um, this man, until the last scene of the movie... Uh, that he appears in is not wearing a shirt at any time. Maybe just to remind us that he's a boxer. Um, I mean, he has a nice body, but... Yeah. I mean, I'd show it off. Mm. Absolutely. Um, especially for, like, 1970s, 1960s, 1970s aesthetics. Everyone was very thin. Yes. So to be that jacked in 1970 was actually quite impressive. Yes. Um, maybe he's wearing a towel around his neck because he was just at the beach. Because that's where... Oh, maybe. Harris and Ashley are. Was he in his bathing out. suit? I don't recall. I'm pretty sure he was wearing long pants. I think so. Maybe it's a long pants swimsuit. Um, I should also mention <laughs> that, that he hits it off with Pet, who is not with Emerson because Emerson's at the law library. That's right. Studying for the bar. Um, so Harris and Ashley are making out on the beach. Um, and Harris just seems like so over having sex with her. And he's like, you always want to have sex in weird places. Why can't we just have sex in bed? <laughs> that is so square. He is a square when we know this about him. I mean, I would rather have sex in a Rolls. Or it's, on the beach. Nothing beats a Rolls, not even a Bentley. <laughs> um, and she gives off this great line. Harris, you're drunk, you're stoned, and worst of all, you're a lousy lay. <laughs> um, so she alludes to him being gay, and then walks off with a total stranger who's just <laughs> standing on a deck. Yeah, where did he come from? I don't know. He was. She found the he, next available man and took him to fuck. She said, "Go find a nice tender boy," and she says, "I already got mine." <laughs> <laughs> So, unfortunately, this is, with that, she salutes us, and with that, uh, Ashley St. Ives, Edie Williams, leaves the movie. I really wish I could watch her for another 17 hours straight. Oh, 100%. I mean, that salute was quite the exit. Um, So, Harris goes back into the party. Kelly's making out with Lance. He gets jealous. He pulls Kelly off of Lance. Him and Lance start to fist fight. Um, oh, Harris, I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> they start to fist <laughs> fight. Harris loses. Um, Kelly then decides to break up with Lance because he's such a jerk for beating up Harris. 
Um, and then, <laughs> this is, I love this part. Kelly breaks up with Lance and then Pet yells at Lance, and how's she getting home? <laughs> because Pet has some of the best lines in the movie. They kind of just give her the throwaway lines that are expositional, but also like no one would ever say them in regular conversation. No, she's <laughs> just so stuck on logistics. <laughs> she really is like the character that's like, she drives like any sort of exhib- exhibition. <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> an exhibitionist film. It is yes. a Russ Myers <laughs> The exposition. <laughs> and then and then Randy and Pet, Randy the shirtless boxer and Pet have this very melodramatic scene about how they only have one life to lead and we are only living for today, etc, etc. Um, Z-Man hits on Lance some more, so we're setting up that Z-Man is really into Lance. Oh, yes. Um, I'd like to audit your books. Oh. Isn't that what he says? <laughs> That's another great pickup line. I'd like <laughs> to audit your books. Um, Listen, you switch hitter. And Harris is all beat up, so he ends up going to Casey's, who we haven't checked in with for a while yeah, in this right. movie. Yeah, that's right. And she's... Where has uh, Casey been? She's... Well, she's in the best setting. She's wearing, like... Silver satin pajamas. That's the right. TV's flickering in the background, and no, she the, just has bottles of pills on her nightstand. But wait a minute, the TV is on the bed that she's. <laughs> the TV. It's like a tube. It's like a tube. On a the tube bed. TV, like a giant tube TV <laughs> on her bed. Like that sounds like that is could lead to like a fire. Yeah, and just and just static on the TV. <laughs> um, he Harris comes in and opens up to. Casey, that he's, you know, sexually confused. Mm. Um, Who isn't? At this point. Is in this movie. In this movie. In this economy. (laughs) Um, So he's sexually confused. Also, that kind of goes nowhere. Um, She offers him him a downer. They talk about how everybody in Hollywood is on grass and juice and downers. Um, We cut. Which they are. Which they are. Um, so they decide to spend the night together. We cut back to Pet and Randy, who are in bed together. Oh, god! So she is now sleeping with Emerson. She's now cheating on Emerson, who comes home from the law library. And <laughs> upon being discovered of cheating on her boyfriend, she yells at him, But you said you were going to study! <laughs> Again, Pet being very expositional. Yes. Um, so Emerson and Randy have this, like, hilarious confrontation, um, and (laughs) Randy ends up hitting Emerson with his car. Yeah, that was a really crazy scene, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and was, like, a stunt double used? It didn't look like it. No. I don't know if they could afford a stunt double. Well, (laughs) on on $900,000? I don't think so. (laughs) Um, so Pet runs out to hold him. Um, we cut back to Harrison Casey. We find out that she slept together and she is pissed off. Uh, she kicks him out. Um, and it's, it's kind of unclear. She... Was he living there? She accuses him of, of raping her, of taking advantage of her because she was fucked up and doesn't remember anything. But they were both really fucked up. They were. It's that's a very it's like a weird, confusing 
Like, because you don't see what happens, yes. right? So, like, she clearly, like, passed out. Yeah. But did he? I guess in, through a 2019 lens, this is also, like, very problematic. Because in the throughout the entire rest of the movie, she insists that he raped her. Yet, we clearly saw the previous scene and he did not rape her. She was very consenting. So... Right. He also woke up with a black eye. Yeah, which he did he not have, have before. Well, maybe I think I think that blood in his eye finally settled in oh, after being right. punched the night before. That's true. Um, so Harris calls Kelly and immediately hangs up. Um, we get this record pressing montage. Um, another another the girls are singing in the band. Harris is on one side looking sad. Z-Man is on the other side looking happy. We get a clear message that you know harris they're now fully past you know they're past being managed by harris they are now deep within the valley of the dolls being managed by z-man um so they're singing look on up at the bottom um (laughs) an amazing title and really uh a mantra with which you should be living your life always look up at the bottom (laughs) And then the girl, we find out that the girls are on a talk show. Pet suggests that they perform the song Find It in, to commemorate, you know, their old friend, which they mean Harris. Um, but Harris is there. He's up in the rafters. And even though how they're singing this, this nostalgic song, we don't, I don't know how he got up how in the rafters. How he got to those rafters. And no one else was up in the rafters either. Um, yeah. And he decides to jump from the rafters. Did he wh- on live television? Did he decide to jump, or was he overwhelmed with emotion? Oh, good question. I like that interpretation. Unclear. <laughs> I like that interpretation. Um, but so the show stops. Um, blood is coming out of his mouth, and all of the blood in this movie, mind you, is like blood orange. Yeah, it's nineteen sixties blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People ate a different diet back then. Um, Clearly the props person did not mix a little bit of green in that bright red blood. (laughs) Just to make it a little bit more lifelike. Um, So then we cut to the hospital and, um, you know, Harris is in the hospital and we find out that he has suffered a spinal cord injury. It's very sad. Um, But there's a possibility that he might recover. There's a slim chance that he's going to recover from his spinal injury, right? There is a, there's a, the doctor suggests there is a slight chance. <laughs> um, and I'd like you to help me. There's an exchange that happens at the hospital. I will be playing the part of Casey and you will be playing the part of Kelly. I just want you to read this line about it. What happened to Harris happened for a reason. What do you know about it? I'm having his baby. Wait, I think we need to redo that. <laughs> Let's do that one more time. One more time. What happened to Harris happened for a reason. What do you know about it? I'm having his baby. <gasps> I mean, what what a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so we find out that 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 night that Casey and Harris had together, she got pregnant. Um, and then we cut to Casey with Roxanne at Roxanne's studio. 
Um, she tells Roxanne that she's pregnant. Roxanne is wearing a very high Victorian collar. She looks like Emily Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> With a cameo and everything. I love a good cameo. Oh, yeah. Uh, both, you know, a celebrity appearance and an actual physical cameo. That's right. Um, Roxanne offers her to... Um, Go to the abortion doctor. Mm. Casey struggles with it. She says, you know, this might be Harris's only chance to ever conceive a child because now he has a spinal cord injury. Um, but eventually, um, Roxanne does convince Casey to go to the abortion doctor where the nurse is very pushy. <laughs> she was demanding. Come on, come on, come on. Get in here. Get in <laughs> like, here. Like, how many abortions does she have to do? <laughs> It's like Hollywood, it's a, baby. I know. It's like it's like they went to some sort of like drive-through abortion place. <laughs> like that was crazy. Come on, come on, get in here, get, get in, in here. here. <laughs> so then Casey sees the stirrups and immediately screams. And those stirrups were high up. <laughs> they were very high up. If I saw if I saw stirrups like that, I would probably scream too. She screams, and I'm not sure. It is very very unclear if she gets the abortion or not. We yeah, never it, find out in the movie if she gets the abortion. No. Um, I think it's assumed that she does. I think it's assumed that she does. But then, like, Roxanne, later in a sex scene, touches her stomach in a weird, suggestive way. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> so, so Casey screams, and then we have another smash cut to pancake batter being poured on her griddle. <laughs> That is that is as close of, like, getting an abortion and then someone cutting to scrambled eggs. <laughs> when that is, like, it was so crazy. Um, every time, and every time a woman in this movie screams, it smash cuts to something unrelated, which That's I have so love. Um, so then we earn that Emerson and Pet have been engaged for about a week. Randy shows up. There's another fight scene. It's kind of boring. Pet pulls yeah. out a knife, scares him off. Um, then we get to the, the, the lesbian sex scene under the tree. Right. Where, um, where most lesbian sex scenes should probably take yeah, place. Yeah, in nature. Lesbians yeah, love so the great outdoors. Mother Earth. Um, Roxanne gropes Casey. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it's funny because this is very, it's meant to be very suggestive. Like, it's meant for the male gaze to see two women making out, groping each other. But it also seems, like, just very progressive for this film to have a lesbian storyline. Well, and released by a major motion picture studio. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, 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 it made a lot of money, so it clearly had some pretty wide distribution. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. I think it's one of those situations where it's it's like backdoor progressive. Um, yeah. I always, the example I always give is Charlie's Angels, about how Charlie's Angels was sold as like, you know, jiggle t vision TV, just about like three hot women being hot, um, but in reality, they were the leads of the show. They were solving crimes. They were the protagonists. Um, they were put in positions of power, and therefore, you know, that show was a success. We could see other cop shows. We, if there was no Charlie's Angels, we never have Cagney and Lacey. That's right. If we didn't have Cagney and Lacey, we never have Olivia Benson. Oh. So it's I. I feel like it's almost this lesbian scene was almost backdoor progressive. That's very true. Yeah. And I think the only reason why, and we'll get into this later, but the only reason why it was okay to include that scene was because of what eventually happens to these characters. Yes. Um, and then we see, we cut back to Kelly's. Harris is in a wheelchair. They're playing chess. 
And <laughs> Harris goes, checkmate. There's no way I can move. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. In a clear reference to his spinal cord injury. <laughs> um, and this whole ordeal makes Kelly realize how important Harris is to her. So this is really the point of the movie where after all their trials and tribulations, they make up. Um, so we cut to Z-Man and he's invited Lance, Roxanne, and Casey for a ritual at the, his house. They've clearly done this ritual before, too. Yes. And they knew what he was talking about. Yeah. And he has costumes ready for them. Um, in red boxes. In red boxes. The bar- Shiny red boxes. <laughs> <laughs> the bar- bartender Otto is dressed like a Nazi for some reason. He's he, maybe because he's Otto. Like His I said, I would love, I would so love to know the symbolism behind Otto the bartender as a German Nazi. Um, and then he gives them all costumes. Z-Man says that he is Superwoman. Right. Even though it's not a Superwoman costume. Well, he has a cape. He has a cape and a very ruffled purple shirt. Yeah, it's definitely not Superwoman. Gold headband. That's right. Um, and then Casey and Roxanne are Robin and Batman, respectively. Yes. Um, so we find out they're going to be drinking... Well- they're and Lance's be... Jungle Lad. Oh, Lance's Jungle Lad. You cannot How forget can I Jungle forget Lad. Jungle Lad. So Lance is just wearing a leopard print speedo. That's Jungle. J- jungle Lad. <laughs> um, so we find out they're smoking peyote. There, there's a scene with some gray, colorful lighting where they're drinking red potions. Right. What was in the red potion? We don't know. We may I never mean, know. I mean, I think I would get sick if I was smoking peyote, which I've never done. But then drinking as well. Yeah. That just sounds like, I mean, doesn't peyote make you... Everybody in this movie is mixing a lot of things they should not be mixing. (laughs) Right. Which is probably why they're so (laughs) down and goofy all the time. (laughs) Um, So then Casey and Roxanne make out and Z-Man tries to seduce Lance. Uh Lance keeps rejecting Z-Man in all of this. And then he even laughs in his face. And this pisses Z-Man off. I mean, that would piss me off, too. If I was hosting a ritual and someone laughed in my face? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he showed up for a reason. Right. (laughs) Um, And then we get the very infamous line, you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. Oh, so good. So Z-Man ties Lance up. They're having a verbal altercation back and forth. Z-Man grabs a sword, which he deems Excalibur, Mm. and is threatening Lance with it. Lance tries to talk him out of it, um, but Lance insists that he's... uh, But Z-Man insists that he's Superwoman, and even then pulls his shirt open to reveal that he has tits. Right. And those tits are weird. They're weird tits. They're... I feel well, like first of all, let's just discuss that he has tits, yes. right? He has very small breasts with puffy nipples. And the and the way that they're revealed is it's a shot from under. <laughs> it's a, so it's unclear. It's like, well, those just could be like kind of man boobs. Like maybe he yeah. ate too much soy. You know what I mean? <laughs> they look like, like they look like you're he he's early <laughs> into a transition. Yeah. Or getting out of a transition. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm confused. I'm confused as well. And it's also, this also brings us to the point of 
you know, it is a lot in a lot of the campy movies we love, there is a trope of the queer character, particularly the trans character at the end mm-hmm. of the movie, turning out to be a cold-blooded killer. Um, we have sleepaway camp, we have stripped to kill. Dressed to kill, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in a lot of these movies, we find out that a character is trans and they are a psychopath and a killer. And, I mean, through a 2019 lens, this is, of course, problematic. Extremely because, problematic. Um, you know, it's showing, it's equating transgender people with crazy. But at the same time, if I am going to kind of look at the other other side of the coin, I think it is portraying the fact that um, people who are marginalized are often driven into craziness because they're so rejected by society. And, and forced to try to fit into society. Yes. They're forced to, and then they're rejected, right? For being their, their, their true selves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so... I don't know. I don't know what the the intention was here. I don't know what Roger and Russ's intention was with having Z Man's be a trans woman, but or trans. I think trans. We, we, oh, don't, we don't know. We don't know. We really don't, we know, don't know if he's a trans happening. woman or a trans man. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I think it's just it's just one of those like typical tropes to explain. You know, back then, it was a trope used to explain why there was, like, this mass craziness that would happen, in ter- which which ends the film, right? And not to get to the end of the film right now, but that, that people start getting murdered and killed. Yeah. Um, and the only way to explain that was to make him out of the norm. Yeah. Or her out of the norm. You know, we, we, don't, we don't really know. Because we, we, there's, no there's no other impetus for him to start killing. Killing. Um, other than the rejection, but he starts killing everybody. Um, and, and it's because Lance calls him an ugly broad. And while then, he's hogtied. While he's hogtied. And then, of course, Z-Man cuts off Lance's head. Um, so then Casey starts to see this. And in her sheer nightgown. Um, and starts to run. And then Otto, the bartender, also starts running scared. Um, Z-Man chases after them. He murders Otto on the beach. Well, but 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 we get to the point where now we're back at the beginning of the film. Yes, we get to the point so now where we're, we're now at the beginning. Now of the we're film. back at Joan Crawford's house, exactly <laughs> right in Mildred Pierce, at her her coastal beach house, film noir at its finest, with a Nazi running out of the house. Yes, um, and something also crazy that we should talk about is that. Sharon Tate uh, played in the original Valley of the Dolls. That's right. And this entire sequence is kind of an homage to the Manson murders. That's right. Um, So it is so (laughs) fucked up. Right, because by the time this was released, she was dead. Yes. She had been murdered. While this was being shot, this was being shot in 1969. I mean, is it safe to say that maybe perhaps... Like, when Roger Eber and, and Russ Meyer wrote the film, it, it, the murders had just happened. Yeah. So how fucking perverse of them to put in a scene in a, essentially a sequel to a movie, um, a murder scene that evokes the death of the actress of the original film. That's crazy. 
it's absolutely insane and very, it's just very subversive. Um, so then we, um, we see, we, we're, so we're back in the original scene. We see Z-Man grab his gun and we learn that in the opening scene, it was Roxanne's mouth he, he put the gun into. That's right. So he shoots her through the head, gun come, gun. Blood comes out of her nose and mouth. Can I also just say that, like, beyond, like, a gun going into a woman's mouth is violating, the fact that she's, like, a lesbian. Yes. Right? And forcing her to, like, suck on this, like, metal gun. It's just, it just is wrong. Yeah. Like, when you when you see it at first, it's like, oh, that's, like, weird in the opening sequence. Like, a, a woman being forced to suck a gun. But then, like, you learn that she's a lesbian, and then at the very end of the movie, it's like, Oh, this is like actually really horrible and awful. Beyond yeah. beyond just like a gun going in a woman's mouth, it's a lesbian that's being forced to suck something phallic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of mixed messages in this film, and um, but it's also it, it's also a movie about good people getting themselves into bad situations. Yeah. So it's kind of what'll happen to you when you go after the lifestyle of pill popping and drinking and smoking grass. I mean, it's basically like my life story. Yeah. I'm a good person <laughs> and I just get in bad situations. <laughs> um, so then we, um, so then Casey calls the gang for help. Um, Harris and Kelly and Emerson and Pet are all playing cards and, um, they find out that people are being murdered, so they get into the van and go. Um, unfortunately, they don't get there in time because Z-Man shoots Casey in the head. Um, and then the gang comes in. They're fighting with Z-Man. They're trying to pull the gun out of his hands, except for Harris, who is, of course, paraplegic and slowly getting his wheelchair from the back of the car. Um, once he finally starts rolling towards the house, they run out, trip over the wheelchair. I think it's Emerson who finally shoots Z-Man dead. Right. Um, Pet announces that Casey is dead. And then there's another body in the house, which is just a torso without a head. A.K.A. Um, Lance. A.K.A. AKA Lance. Jungle Lad. Um, so Casey's doing her very expositional, ex expositional announcement moment, and then all of a sudden, Harris's toes start to move. And this is when he uh. realizes, right, right when they're finding about their friends being murdered, he realizes his legs are starting to work again, and he's very happy about it and kisses Kelly. Can, so we, they just, have can a, we just have an homage to the toes, though? Yes. I mean, we go back to the feet. Oh my god! Right, we go back. I to just the made that connection. That's right. That's right. That that they kept pointing out his feet, and he always wears sandals. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, it's his feet that needed to work. Oh my god! And Ashley St. Ives wanted to lick his toes. Yeah, I mean, I've seen this movie half a dozen times, and I've never made that connection before. Um. So this is the point in the movie where they just start busting out exposition. Um, so we see Kelly and Harris walking in a field. He has, has a nice pair of loft strand crutches. That's right. Um, to walk through this field. And we get a voiceover. The voice of God. The voice of God. Um, explaining what, what the morality story for each and every character in this movie was. I mean, there were like maybe 10 plus morality stories. Very different. Very different from one another. 
Um, none of these, none of these things were really clear. I don't know if this was something Roger Ebert just tacked on at the end of the movie. It, it reads like T.S. Eliot's, like, the, the cat poems. What is that <laughs> called? Like, the Jellicle Cats? Like, each yes. one is different, right? And then, like, each one has their own story and their own lesson. It's so weird. Yeah. It's like, oh, Aunt Susan, she was so sweet and pure. She couldn't look, she couldn't see other people's faults. And it just like, <laughs> who gave a fuck about Aunt Susan this whole time? <laughs> My name is not Susan. <laughs> um, so then after we find out the moralities, uh, morality tales behind every single character in the movie, we get an epilogue, which is a triple wedding ceremony between Susan and Baxter Pat and Emerson, mm-hmm. and of course, Kelly and Harris. Um, and then Porter is looking in through the window. That peeping Tom. And we get a really slapstick moment where the judge walks over and closes the blinds to the window. <laughs> Roll credits. Oh my God. Um, so that is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So now, now that we have discussed the plot in its entirety, um, it's time for our camp analysis. Yeah. Question number one. Um, is this movie campy? I mean, of course it is. Of course it right? is. Right? Of course it is. What else would it be? I mean, the, the thing that does, and it doesn't really fully throw me off, but it, you know, the fact that you've got two people in on the joke. Yes. But, you know, that honestly is what, what I think really works, is that you do have people in on the joke. It's much like... For me, Showgirls and Gina Gershon is in on the joke the entire time. Oh, yes. No one else is in on the joke. Yes. Here you've got the writer and the director in on the joke, and everyone else is just a puppet. Yes. And it, it plays out perfectly. Well, I think Russ Myers was famous for hiring, you know, buxom women, Playboy centerfolds, porn stars, what have you. Um, Dolly Reed and Cynthia Myers were both Playboy centerfolds, and he just had them played straight. He had them played as serious as they possibly could. And and I think that they probably wanted to because they were extremely marginalized entertainers being performing in various films that were not seen widely by the public. Can you imagine if you were like in a put in a film that's in a pussycat theater and then all of a sudden you get a job and you're working for 20th Century Fox? It's going to have picture. a major motion picture that's going to have wide yeah. distribution that's the sequel to a iconic piece of literature and film from your era that you're currently in. That's crazy. Yeah. Of course you're going to play that straight. Yes, absolutely. The best you possibly can. <laughs> so, so Ross and Roger, I think, set out to make a bad movie. They set out to make a campy movie. And the fact that this film is just an all-out assault on the senses... The dialogue is so fast, all over the place. You really have to pay attention. And even when you pay attention, I don't think it always makes sense. The colors in this movie are just the most vibrant 1960s colors you could imagine. Um, The songs are really fun. Um, Yeah. Just the timing, too. There's a lot of really, like, the editor, I have to say, knew knew what was going on. Like, just in terms of the cuts between dialogue and just the just the timing and pacing of things, yeah. it just lended itself to comedy. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. it wasn't it wasn't some sort of, like, psychological thriller, which it kind of starts off as if that's what it's going to be. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of comedy. Absolutely. 
And I think the editing, yeah, you're right. The editing really helps it to live as an intentional comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think most people think of camp as unintentionally. That's right. Funny. Um, which it can be, and we hope to be discussing a lot of unintentionally funny films. Most of my comedy is unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to, to re recap some of the tropes that we discuss, discussed um, that I think also help the camp are the smash cuts. Yes. Also part of the editing. Yes. Um, I would say the silly montages. Montages. Also the part of the editing. The... Blood orange blood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> blood orange blood. blood. The um, casting casting Playboy models, porn stars as legitimate actresses and making them play it straight. Yeah. I, I, I think, too, even some of the characters' names. Like, Ashley St. Ives. Yes. Like, what a name. Ugh. Pet... Right? Petronella Danforth. You, there you go. I mean, it's like, that's that's enough. Talk about, like, ornate names. Like, that really is, like, the definition of camp. That kind of, like, ornate feeling that you get when you say that, when you say Ashley St. Ives. Ugh. Opulence, <laughs> but yet she's so trashy. Absolutely. I think that's the best way to describe the high priestess of carnality. <laughs> um, so the second question was, what makes this movie campy? I mm. think we successfully we, covered we that, that already. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, we this being a um, our t- the title of our podcast being loose narrative. Um, as camp films often have a loose narrative, we want to discuss just how loose the narrative of this movie was. And we're going to do this on a scale of one to five fingers, um, <laughs> with five fingers, of course, being a fist. I, I mean, you have to go first. Um, this is your favorite film. So this is probably my favorite movie of all time. Um, I always thought the narrative of this movie was very loose, but having watched it like and taken notes, I actually see the thorough line between all the characters and what kind of what's going on. So I don't really, I would give it, but there are some unanswered questions as well. Um, so I would give it a solid two fingers. Two fingers? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess, yeah, that now that you put it, like, just there there are there are some definite through lines. I was thinking this would this isn't a full five finger fist mm-hmm. because you kind of know what's happening. Yes. Um I, you know, I I I was thinking maybe a three or a four. You know, it's just it's it's loose enough that you could almost get a fifth yeah. finger in there, but you can't do it. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I've watched this movie at least half a dozen times. Um, maybe we we can split the difference, say three fingers, but I you need so. extra, but you're gonna need extra lube. You <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, that was Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And um, I absolutely love this movie, would so recommend good. it to anybody. Um, as and you don't need to watch Valley of the Dolls to understand it. Not at That's all. That's the beauty of it. You don't need to watch the first one. No. Go straight to the second. Yeah. Um, so we're going to wrap up. Um, 
Let's get into um, our final segment of the show, which I'm calling Loose Recommendations. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Chris, what are your current camp obsessions outside of this movie? Outside of this movie? Well, current camp obsessions. Well, yesterday I went to go see Judy. Oh, how was it? It was fine. I was obsessed with Renee. She really was Judy. And, and, and it's not like the typical Judy Garland that you know from like Wizard of Oz or um, the Easter Parade. It's, it's the Judy Garland from the Judy Garland show in like the early, like the mid 1960s. Just jittery, constantly looking. Clearly the pills have completely caught up. All the booze is caught up. It was such a riveting performance and yet also campy. There were so many just funny yet tender moments that I absolutely loved. Um, the story itself, some, sometimes it played as if it was a made-for-TV movie, but, you know, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Made-for-TV movies can also they be can. very camp. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. I think I think um, Renee Zellweger also delivered an extremely camp performance recently in What If, that Netflix show. I didn't oh, watch I all didn't, of it. I didn't see but it. But from what I did see, it was extremely camp. So why don't we just make our loose wreck this week, Renee Zellweger. Oh, Renee. Good yes. old Renee. A good quivering lip. <laughs> all right. So thank you guys for joining in. I have been Christoph Papula. You can find me at Kpakula, that's at K-P-A-K-U-L-A on Instagram. And I'm Chris Lane, and you can find me at Topher Lane on Instagram. Um, we also have a um, Loose Narrative Podcast Instagram, that's at Loose Narrative Podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, please slide into those DMs. Please, send us any of your camp pics, too. <laughs> And um, we will see you guys next time. Ta-ta. Bye.